Acts chapter 15 is where we're at this morning, Acts chapter 15, and um, if you would join me there, we'll get started. Uh, I, I wanted to start off by saying, given the, cur- the current cultural moment that we're living in right now, I just want to assure everybody that's part of Delaware Bible Church, you are not crazy, okay? I know it feels like you're going crazy, right? But you're not crazy. What you suspect is happening to you is very real. Now, maybe perhaps you've felt like you've been made to feel crazy, and I think there's some truth to that. If you're like me, you've suspected for some time that, the, that leadership at the highest echelons of government and in our institutions have been rigging the system behind the scenes. We've kind of suspected that for a while now. And when you bring up your suspicions in conversation, oftentimes, if you're me, you're, you're made to feel like you're crazy, right? Like this is all a big conspiracy theory, like how are you buying into the nonsense that you're buying into? But I assure you this morning, brothers and sisters, you're not crazy, okay? Recently, uh, there has been reporting by some independent journalists by the name of Matt Taibbi, Barry Weiss, Michael Schellenberger, and Lee Fong that collectively have been called the Twitter files, right? Maybe you've heard about this, maybe just in passing. Uh, this doesn't get a lot of mainstream media airplay, and the airplay that it does get in the mainstream media is less than accurate. After Elon Musk acquired, he uh, purchased Twitter, he opened the company communications from the past to journalists so that they could do an examination of how the company has been running. And if you're not on Twitter, I don't blame you. Uh, I would recommend that you get off Twitter. Uh, I am am taking a hiatus for the entire month of 2023, Lord willing. Um, But uh, that being said, the reality of the situation that we live in is that many of our journalists and many of our uh, upper, upper echelon leadership, they take their information from Twitter and they also you know, do some debating on Twitter. Hopefully it gets, it's constructive, not always. That may, that reality may not be the best thing that they, that this is happening on Twitter, but it's the reality of the situation that we, that we live in. And in summary, these Twitter files, in summary, have found that people at the highest echelons of our government and at institutional levels have been working with Twitter to suppress certain news and perspectives that they deem to be misinformation. Now, let me just say, I don't, I have a lot less of a problem if someone is calling someone misinformation and they're doing so transparently. In other words, some news starts to break or some ideas start to creep out into the culture and then someone in leadership says, hey, look, this is wrong. Let me show you why it's wrong. And this is such a dangerous piece of misinformation that I'm going to recommend to these social media companies like Twitter that we not talk about it, that we not allow this informa- this misinformation to be propagated. I'm okay with that. That's very transparent. I- I'm, I'm not a huge fan of that, but I would, I would get it. But what I'm not for is I'm not for being lied to. I'm not for having the leaders that are over me to look me right in the eye and tell me that they're not suppressing information when the information that's being dug up is telling me that the exact opposite is true. That's not going to abide with me. And that seems to be the case. 
that seems to be what is being discovered. The government has simply decided, or many in the upper echelons of government and institutions have decided what could and could not be discussed on that platform. Let me ask you this question. This is a, I'm asking this in good faith. Is that leadership? Or is that more akin to dictatorship? Let me just let that hang out there for a minute while I change topics here. This past week, uh, you know, if you're paying attention to anything, the, uh, the House, of Re- House of Representatives at the federal level switched from being Democrat-controlled uh, to Republican control, which means the Republicans were in charge of assembling enough votes to put together a Speaker of the House. And this man, Kevin McCarthy, was voted in as Speaker of the House after 15 votes. Now, I, I chuckle at that a little bit because <clears throat> 10 years ago when I came to Delaware Bible Church, I don't know if you guys know this, read your church constitution sometimes. It's an exciting read. Uh, but it in order to install a senior pastor at Delaware Bible Church, you have to get 90% of the membership to vote yes. Okay, 90%. And um, uh, Kevin McCarthy didn't get 90%, so. (laughs) Okay, so all joking aside, I wonder what it would have been like if I would have come here 10 years ago and candidated for the role of pastor, and then we took a vote and I got 60%, but I said, you know what, let me make some deals and see if I can and spin that up to, to 90. And 15 votes later, I got 90%. Would, would you guys like that? No. Now, I don't know exactly what happened. There's some reporting out there that seems to indicate that the holdouts, the people that weren't voting for McCarthy, were kind of forcing his hand to say, look, if, if I'm going to switch my vote to you, then we're going to have to put something on the floor about term limits. highly needed. By the way, I don't think term limits is something that the Congress should vote on. I think that's something that we should vote on. That's just me. That's just me. Okay, so term limits. And, and some other member of Congress that said, well, if you want my vote for you, we're going to have to talk about actually debating amendments on the floor, something that we haven't done. We have not voted, my understanding, we have not voted on an amendment to a piece of legislation on the floor of the People's House in six years. So if you want my vote, you're going to have to say, you're going, you're going to have to allow us to debate amendments on the floor, and, and so on and so forth. I don't know exactly what happened, but eventually, after 15 votes, Kevin McCarthy is the new Speaker of the House. Will we ever know exactly what deals were made? Were those deals made transparently? I don't know, and I'm troubled by that. Why do I bring all this stuff up? Because I want to paint for you today a contrast. A contrast between leadership as we see it in Acts 15 and the leadership that we're experiencing today within our government and other institutions that I think is, is very starkly different than what we, what we see exercised in the book of Acts. So let's just get into it uh, here for a minute. The, the, message, the, the question that we're going to ask today and try to answer is how do godly leaders deal with problems? Folks, all churches, I, I know this is, this is weird, coming from the senior pastor, right? All churches, including ours, we have problems. There's sticky issues that we have to work through that are particular to our congregation. 
Other churches have problems. We as individuals have problems. This is all as a result of the fall of man in Genesis chapter 3 and the sin that exists in our lives today. We have problems. But how we choose to deal with those problems is critically important. Critically important. And what we see in Acts chapter 15, it is my thesis this morning, what we see in Acts chapter 15 is a dazzling display of godly leadership in all of its glory and is a model of something that we should be expecting of our leaders today. Let's get into why. Now, if you remember, I, I know I'm calling upon your memory, before Christmas, I just introduced the problem, right? And the problem is, is Acts 15, 1 and 2, but some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and to the elders about this question. That, the, the church, the, the religious landscape of their day was shifting. They had grown up in the Jewish faith, in uh, sacrificing in the temple, right? The priesthood, all these things, circumcision, the ceremonial law. And now Christ had come. He had come, he had lived, he had performed his earthly duties, his ministry. He had died on the cross. He had resurrected three days later. He had appeared to many and then ascended into heaven. And now uh, the church is left, what's left behind is a, a group of people who are followers of Jesus Christ. The day of Pentecost happened, the Holy Spirit came into the church, and now they have to figure out, how do we do life in a post-Jewish and now following Christ world? How do we, what's that look like? And there's different voices that are popping up, and one of the voices that are popping up are saying, you must be circumcised according to the custom of Moses, or you cannot be saved. Sticky problem, right? Why is it sticky? Well, if, if, the, if Paul and Barnabas, for example, decide, no, you don't have to do that anymore. You're going to immediately alienate a whole bunch of Jewish people, right? And a lot of those Jewish people are people that they want to reach with the message of Jesus Christ. And if you say, no, you do have to be circumcised, you're going to alienate a whole bunch of Gentiles, especially the Gentile men who don't want to go through surgery at this age, right? So, it's a sticky problem. It's, it, it's fundamental to the gospel, right? Because these men are saying, you have to go through this procedure in order to be saved. So it's important, it's critical, and it's sticky. How are they going to deal with it? Well, Pastor Brad talked about uh, some parts of Acts chapter 15 last week. He talked about um, Paul and Barnabas and Peter kind of giving their testimony as, as to what they had seen. Uh, Peter, as you remember, he was the one who saw the vision of the sheet coming down with the unclean animals on it and, was, and heard the voice, rise, Peter, kill and eat. And God had orchestrated some events to let him know with no uncertainty that that was from God and that that what that meant was that the door of salvation was now open to the Gentiles, to the non-Jewish people. Paul and Barnabas had set about from the church of Antioch to go and carry the gospel to unreached peoples. And often when they would arrive in town, they would start in the 
synagogue, the place, the place where the Jews would meet. But then they would branch out from there, and they saw many Gentiles come to Christ to begin to follow him and to be filled with the Holy Spirit, transforming their lives. And so they've heard these testimonies, right, from these different witnesses. And today, we're going to go kind of into the next phase of that. So, first thing I want to share with you from our passage today, which begins in verse 15, is this. Godly leaders appeal to God and not human authority. Godly leaders appeal to God and not to human authority. Look at verses, uh, let's pick it up in verse 13. After this, they finished speaking, James, now James is the half-brother of Jesus, let me just say this, James is the half-brother of Jesus, and he is, from all that we can tell, he became a mover and shaker, kind of a leader in the church of Jerusalem. So James may be the one who's kind of leading this council, or at least moderating the council of all these people that have gathered here. After they finished speaking, James replied, brothers, listen to me. Simeon, and that also could be translated Simon, and so we believe that that's Peter, right? And the context will help us to understand that. Simeon has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for his name. So he's probably hearkening back to that vision that Peter had and all of the ministry that Peter was able to do. And with this, the words of the prophets agree just as it is written. And now... James is going to start quoting from the book of Amos. Here's the quote. After this, I will return, and I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins, and I will restore it, that the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord, and all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who makes these things known from of old. There's the end of the quote. And then he says, Therefore my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God. And we'll just stop right there. What he means by that is he's to not make them, force them into circumcision or obedience to the Old Testament law in that way. Now, let's just stop right there and let's talk about this for a minute. Let's talk about worldly leadership. Oftentimes, if you go out into the world and you begin a discussion with someone about a topic something that's going on in our world, something that's happening, this is what you'll get thrown in your face. What degree do you hold, right? Do you have a, a, an undergraduate degree in what we're talking about? Do you have a master's degree in what we're talking about? Do you have a PhD in what we're talking about? You don't, then you need to be quiet. Now, we need to see through that, right? And I just want to say, everyone in this room is entitled to a viewpoint. All of you guys are smart. You're intelligent people. And can I just say this? We don't take things to be true simply because someone that's got a Ph.D. says it to be true, right? Each one of us, I mean, this is even the way that God operates, right? He says things in his word like each one has to be convinced in his own mind. And yet, we live in a world where we're told, if you don't have a specific degree uh, on, a, on a certain topic, you're not entitled to, maybe it's too, too uh, complicated for you to understand. Don't you believe it. Don't you believe it. Uh, for, where, where I'm from on the farm, uh, we call a PhD a post hole digger. You know, it just gets you deeper in the hole. 
Now, listen, I'm not the smartest guy in this room. I know I'm not the smartest guy in this room, but I do have an undergraduate degree in engineering and a, and a master's degree in theology, and I like to think that I'm a re reasonably intelligent person. And I have oftentimes seen people who hold advanced degrees, more advanced than mine, make clearly humongous errors in their judgment and in their understanding of the universe that we live in. So one of the things that we can all anchor our lives to is the word of God the scripture it never changes I know that there's people that, that pervert it I know that there's people that try to twist it and that's why we all need to study it so that we can tell when that's happening but the word of God is true he's our creator and it never, it never changes so don't, don't believe into that uh, another thing that oh Pastor Aaron gave me a deck of cards that was on logical fallacies. And uh, one of the logical fallacies that people fall for all the time is called an appeal to authority. And that's what this is. When somebody says, what degree do you hold? You're not an expert on this, so you need to be quiet. That is an appeal to authority. That's a person who doesn't want to explain it in such a way that it's understandable, but simply wants to deem it to be true because somebody with a high degree said it to be true. That's a logical fallacy. The next thing that we see is we hear people say, you'll hear people say, well, you're not an expert, right? You're not an expert. Uh, this person knows what they're talking about because they've reached expert status. Now, you and I, we all lived through 2019, 2020, and 2021, 2022. We all lived through those years, right? And what did we learn about expert status? Now, listen, we have to give grace to folks because we, honestly, we haven't gone through a pandemic in, in quite a number of years. But at the end of the day, we have to understand, right? We have to understand that the folks that claim expert status, the folks that say, when you walk into the restaurant, wear a mask, go in six feet, sit at your tables, and then it's fine. You're perfectly safe to take your mask off. Don't really know what they're talking about, right? That's, that's not logically coherent speak. And so one of the things that happens just naturally among us and humans, and we're susceptible to it too, is that you, you operate within a certain field for a period of time and you think you know everything. And conversely, you think that nobody else knows as much as you do. And you can begin to believe that your own wisdom is right. Bible says pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. Now, oftentimes, like I said, our, our leaders, whether they be government or institutional leaders, claim to be smart because they hold a high degree or they claim to be smart because they've been operating in a field for some period of time and they have expert status. But let's contrast this with what we see in this passage. I want, what I see in this passage is I see that kind of the big names of, Christ, of the early church have assembled here. You've got James, the half-brother of Jesus, for heaven's sakes. You've got Peter, you know, the one that the sheet, he had the vision with the sheet and, and he walked with Jesus for years. He denied Christ three times. Christ restored him after that. I mean, Peter has a long and very epic history with Jesus. You've got the apostle Paul and Barnabas that have showed up this thing. Paul, who was a persecutor of Christians, who then saw Jesus on the road to Damascus and it transformed his life. I mean, these are no slouches that are showing up at this meeting. But I want you to notice 
you don't, this is, this is a logical fallacy. I'm just going to admit it. But what you don't see, in, this is called an argument from silence. What you don't see in this passage is Peter going, going up to the crowd and saying, everybody shut up. Now, I just want to remind everybody in this room, I'm Peter. I'm that, I'm that Peter. I'm that guy. The one that walked with Jesus. I'm that Peter. Listen to me. You don't see the Apostle Paul going, yeah, I'm Paul. I'm going to go on. I'm, I'm working on some uh, letters right now that are going to knock your socks off. You see in this instance, James going back and looking at the Scripture, looking at the Old Testament prophets to see if what we're experiencing in this life and what we're the lines that we're thinking along do these things square with what God has said? And that requires the H word, humility. Godly leaders will exercise humility. 1 Timothy 1.15 says this, This saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. Who said those words? Who wrote those words? Paul did. That Paul, the Apostle Paul, the writer of like a third of the New Testament, Paul, said, you know who I am? I am the foremost sinner. Everything I am, everything I ever hope to be is because of Jesus Christ. That's the kind of leaders that we want. They don't appeal to the human authority. They appeal to God. Second thing that we see in this uh, text is that godly leaders understand the culture in which they lead. Look at verses 20 and 21. After James says in verse 19, Therefore my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God. Verse, verse 20 says, But should write them to abstain from the things polluted by idols and from sexual immorality and from every and from what has been strangled and from blood. For from ancient generations Moses had in every city those who proclaim him, for he is read every Sabbath in the synagogues. Okay. Now, this may be a bit confusing. It was confusing to me when I started to study it. It may seem like what's going on here is that the council is saying you don't have to obey the Old Testament law and get circumcised, right? But you do have to obey these four rules, right? And those four rules are, you know, uh, sexual immorality, things polluted by idols, stay away from those, stay away from animals that have been strangled and from, you know, eating the blood of animals. But hear me out. I think I can show you and prove to you that that's not exactly what's happening here. In the culture that we live in today, for example, there are things that are very offensive to some people, right? Um, this joke landed like a lead balloon in first service, okay, but let me just try it out in second service. You guys are a little bit more enlightened. <laughs> because I just told you what I, that it was going to be a joke coming next, right? To, to some people in, that are from a Baptist background, dancing is very offensive. <laughs> Nobody, nope, I guess we're saying, <clears throat> that was a joke. That was, that was my attempt at humor. No, but seriously, there are some things that are very, very offensive, right? So if we're going to go out into public and minister the gospel to people, right, to go out and to needlessly offend someone and then try to say, now let me tell you about Jesus' love, right? To go into a setting where you know that there's going to be some, some folks that are perhaps struggling with their gender identity and to, to needlessly offend them, right? Knowing You know what's going to offend them and to needlessly offend them. 
I would say you can't compromise your convictions, but at the same time, to needlessly offend them, to be on purpose about it, and then say, let me tell you about the love of Jesus Christ, is not going to work. It's not going to be good. And so, to the Jews, some of these things that are mentioned, uh, eating, in essence, I think what he's talking about, things polluted by idols, he's talking about meat offered to idols. There was this practice in the pagan world that they would sacrifice animals and not offer them to God, as was the practice in the temple, the temple in Jerusalem. But they would, they would butcher these animals and they would offer them to Moloch or offer them to some false god, Baal. And then once the whole ceremony was over, they would collect that, those animals and they would carve up the meat and they would sell the meat in the marketplace for money. Good business, right? And although, uh, although um, there's nothing physically wrong with that meat, you know, they didn't put like extra bacteria in it or, or drag it through the dirt or anything like that, um, it would have been highly offensive to feed that meat to a, Jewish per, to a Jewish person or to see you as a person who's trying to have a relationship with a Jewish person purchase that meat yourself and eat it. So in an attempt to try to operate in the earth, on the earth wisely, the council advised them of some things that it would be wise for them to, to do. To abstain from things polluted by idols, to, to abstain from sexual immorality, that is against God's word, for sure. But for them to be particularly meticulous about it, because in the culture that they lived, in the Roman pagan culture that they lived, sexual immorality was a huge part of pagan, um, the practice of pagan worship. And so I said, be careful and stay away from that. Stay away from what's been strangled and stay away from blood. And then he goes on to explain why. For from ancient generations, Moses has in every city those who proclaim him, and he is, for he is read, in every, uh, read every Sabbath in the synagogues. These things would be highly offensive to the Jews, so stay away from them. This is just part of good insight, right? This is a part of the church council that's understanding the culture that they live in, the people that they're trying to witness to, share the gospel with, and just saying, hey, look, as we go about our, the operation of our lives, let's be careful to avoid these things. In Judges chapter 3, uh, verses 15 to 23, one of the uh, Israelite judges, Ehud, is going in to visit the Moabite king, Eglon, and he knows this is an enemy of Israel. God has raised up Ehud to do away with Eglon, to kill him. But Ehud, he knows that when he comes into the presence of the king to basically present him with a bunch of gold and treasure for tax purposes because Eglon was oppressing the Israelites that he was going to be searched for weapons and that most warriors are right-handed and they wear their sword on their left thigh but Ehud was left-handed and he put his sword on his right thigh and when they searched him they didn't check there apparently The Bible brings all these details out, apparently in an attempt to show us that Ehud had some insight as he went to do what God had called him to do. He exercised that insight with precision, and he was able to take out Eglon, the king of Moab, as God had led him there to do. So we have to use our insight. 
God, in 1 Corinthians 8, um, we read about Paul is going to give kind of a dissertation. He's going to talk about, you can turn there, he's going to give a little bit of a talk in 1 Corinthians 8 about food that's offered to idols and how the church, how Christians should see that, right? And, and so what he's saying, in, and I'm boiling this down a little bit, he's saying, look, there's nothing wrong with the meat itself and there's nothing wrong with eating the meat because we know that those idols aren't really gods. They're false. However, the principle that we want you to live by is if you're trying to witness to someone or you're trying to be an example to the people around you and you know that purchasing and eating that meat offered to idols creates a stumbling block for them, then don't do it. Pick it up in verse 7, 1 Corinthians 8. However, not all possess this knowledge, but some, through former associations with idols, eat food as really offered to an idol, and their conscience, being weak, is defiled. Food will, will not commend us to God. We are no worse off if we do not eat, and no better off if we do. But take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. For if anyone sees you who have knowledge of eating an idol's, in an idol's temple, will, not be, will he not be encouraged if his conscience is weak? to eat the food offered to idols. We are not to be a stumbling block. That's just part of understanding the culture that we live in. And we as Christians need to do a better job at this. There are some Christians that are so confrontational. Think, you know, sometimes I think that the mainstream media thinks that all churches are like Westboro Baptist Church, you know, the ones that go to the funerals and hold the signs that are very offensive. And we are not to be that way. I don't think we are, but we are not to needlessly offend when we're trying to minister the gospel. And I think the church council here in Acts 15 understands that. You can also say that they were operating in wisdom here. If you can go to 1 Corinthians or 1 Kings chapter 3, you don't have to go there now, but if you go to 1 Kings chapter 3, you'll read about Solomon and how he prayed for wisdom. And in 1 Kings chapter 3, verses 16 to 28, he's presented with this child who two women claim is their son, and he has to figure out how to figure out who's, which woman is his mother. And he does a good job. He exercises great wisdom. So, godly leaders understand, they appeal to God and not human authority. Secondly, they understand the culture in which they lead. And then thirdly, godly leaders do the work of effective communication. Effective communication. Look at verses 22 to 29 of Acts chapter 15 says, then it seemed good to the apostles and the elders with the whole church. Now, let's just stop right there. Uh, again, here's another contrast. In worldly leadership, it seems like this is the tactic that's being used today. Let's get 50% plus one of whatever legislative body that we're trying to get hold of the House, the Senate, whatever. And then we'll just impose our will on the rest of everybody else. But what, we, what I'm simply trying to point out to you here is that it seems like in this church council, what they were trying to do, what the leadership was trying to do was to build consensus. Let's talk about this and let's present all ideas until we arrive at what seems good to all everybody. I know that sometimes is impossible, but you get the idea. There's a, there's a contrast here. 
Then it seemed good to the apostles and the elders with the whole church to choose men from among them and send them to Antioch. That's back to the, that's Paul and Barnabas' church of home base. With Paul and Barnabas. And they sent Judas called Barsabbas and Silas, leading men among the brothers with the following letter. The brothers, both the apostles and the elders, to the brothers who are of the Gentiles in Antioch and Syria and Cilicia, greetings. Now, I want you to just notice that this letter is specifically written to Gentile followers of Jesus Christ. Verse 24. Since we have heard that some persons have gone out from us and troubled you with words unsettling your minds, although we gave them no instructions... It seemed good to us, having come to one accord, to choose men and send them to you with our beloved Paul and Barnabas, men who have risked their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Let me just stop right there and just, I'm just going to say this and let it hang. It's, it's one thing to be a follower of Jesus Christ in word. It's a completely different thing to be a, word, a follower of Jesus Christ in action. And what they're saying is, these men were men of action um, they're the real deal. Verse 27, We have therefore sent Judas and Silas, who themselves will tell you the same things by, the word, by word of mouth, for it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay on you no greater burden than these requirements, that you abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols and from blood, from what has been strangled, and from sexual immorality. If you keep yourselves from these things, you will do well farewell now just just as a side note a, a, another contrast oftentimes we are told by worldly leadership government institution whatever we are told by worldly leadership i'm going to tell you this take my word for it trust me But I want you to contrast that with what's going on here with the church council in Jerusalem and their communication back to the churches in Antioch and beyond. They send back Paul and Barnabas, probably with a written letter, but they also send two more witnesses that were there at the council, men that are from Jerusalem. Why? Well, there's an Old Testament, well, and there's a biblical principle of, you know, on the evidence of two or three witnesses. And so uh, they sent them back with these men to to say listen don't just trust paul and barnabas don't just trust you know one person let me let's send you some representatives you know your your homeboys from uh, paul and barnabas but also some representatives from the church in jerusalem who are going to affirm that what they say happened happened i think that's just really good and wise communication okay first of all they they provided the information who what when where why how they told them that they deliberated, that they reached consensus, and that um, here, are the, here are the things that we would like you to practice. They did so transparently, right? They did so transparently. Um, in Galatians 1, don't turn there, but in Galatians 1, you can read about Paul saying, listen, I, he just gives his testimony, and he's super transparent about it. Like, I was a persecutor of the church, and I met Christ on the road to Damascus, and then my life began to change. There is a there is somehow a need amongst worldly leaders to try to keep from us the things that they don't want us to hear. The deals that were made behind closed doors, the, 
the rationale of the decision that was made because it may serve some selfish, either personal or party preference. But these guys are just transparent. They, they exercise kindness, right? It, let's, just talk, let's just talk about kindness for a minute, and then we'll talk about why I say it in this passage. Uh, Ephesians 4.29 says, Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as good for building up as fits the occasion that it might give grace to those who hear. So that's, that's what I mean by, they use their words to build up, not tear down. Here's what I, what I see in the passage. That letter that went from the church of Jerusalem to the church in Antioch, Syria, and Cilicia could have included a list of the names of the men who've been spreading that you must be circumcised in order to be saved. And they could say, listen, whatever you do, don't listen to Brother Leon. He's an idiot. You know, don't listen to Brother Fred. He's, a, he's disgusting. You know, don't. No, it said, look, there's been some men that have come out from among us, and they were not authorized. I just think that they expressed that in a very kind way. Right? Here's our final decision. They provided guidance, right? As I said, they took the wisdom that they had figured out. Living in the culture that we live in, let's, let's, let's put on them these four things just as wisdom issues, and they gave them that guidance, right? Where there is no guidance, a people falls, but in abundance of counselors, there is safety. Don't ever be afraid to ask for, by the way, if you're going through a sticky situation, to ask for biblical guidance from one of your leaders. It's a good, it's a good thing. But, uh, you know, oftentimes in worldly leadership, Okay, I've got to tell this. I got to tell this story. I know I'm going to run short of time, but I got to tell the story. I worked in the corporate world for a time, and and I've worked for some very good people, and I don't want to besmirch them at all. But in the corporate environment, leadership sometimes needs not needs to. They sometimes do ride the fence of decision making because if they take a position, then they're going to get the blame for it later on, right? Anybody else been in this situation? Yeah. Okay. Good. And so, what do they do? They waffle around and they cast about and they. They want you to study a little bit more or gather a little bit more information. And it's almost like the decision becomes super obvious to everybody in the whole company. And then they go, yeah, let's do that. And they announce it triumphantly as if they've come to a really good conclusion. What they've really done is waited so long that the decision is obvious to everyone in the... That's not leadership, right? That's not leadership. And so... I just want to say that it took courage for the, the council in Jerusalem to, to think of these things, knowing that they're going to be unpopular with some people, and to say, listen, we think it's wise right now. Practice this way. Don't, no blood, no strangled animals, sexual immorality, avoid that, and things offered to idols. So they gave good guidance. And I just want to say one other thing before we move on to the last point, which is this. They spoke clearly. One of the things that I've noticed about leadership, ungodly leadership in general, is when they don't want to tell you a clear answer, they will use complexity and confusing language. Uh, what is sometimes referred to by uh, folks, even in the media, as word salad. Any, anybody ever heard somebody use word salad? They just give you a lot of words and terminology and jargon, and they mix it all up and kind of toss it in a bowl and then present it to you as if that was an answer to the question, but in reality, if you pick those words apart, the question was never answered. And that's done. When, when you see that happening, 
there's there's deception and hiding going on there. Now, let me just let me just cement that point before I move on. In the world that we live in, in almost every college that has liberal arts degrees, there is a degree called communications, right? I when I studied at Purdue, I there were other people that were around me that were communications majors. And their job, their goal is to is their whole shtick in life is to figure out how to take maybe even a complex thing and communicate it as clearly and robustly as they can. And so, let me just say this. Large corporate leadership, government leadership, they have money. Whether it's our tax dollars or whether it's the profit that they've made, they've got money. And they have access to these communication majors that are all over the place. And the fact that, what I'm saying is that they have the possibility, to, they, have, they have the capability, the resources to communicate to us clearly. And so when they do not, just be suspicious. That's all I'm saying. I just wanted you to see the contrast between godly leadership that tries to communicate clearly and worldly leadership that maybe tries to hide in confusion and complexity. Okay, last one. Godly leaders press on with the work. Godly leaders press on with the work. Look at verses 30 and 35. So when they were sent off, they went down to Antioch, and having gathered the congregation together, they delivered the letter. And when they had read it, they rejoiced because of its encouragement. Judas and Silas, who were, them, who were themselves prophets, encouraged and strengthened the brothers with many words. And after they had spent some time, they were sent off in peace by the brothers to those who had sent them. So back to Jerusalem. But Paul and Barnabas remained in Antioch, teaching and preaching the word of the Lord with many others also. So they did not consider this church council as some great feat this some, this some great accomplishment that they could then campaign on for their next term as elder or apostle, right? They, they got back to work doing what was good for the people. And in this case, it was encouraging them. First Thessalonians 5.11 says, therefore, encourage one another and build one another up as you are doing. Everybody in this room needs to hear an attaboy, an girl once in a while. How are you doing at walking with the Lord? Oh, my relationship with the Lord has been good. Great, keep it up. My relationship with the Lord has been rocky. I haven't opened my Bible in a week. Ah, oh, man, I'm going to call you tomorrow, and uh, I'm going to just make sure that you're getting into God's Word. That's our jobs to one another. Let's encourage one another. Build one another up, right? To strengthen. There's a typo in your bulletin, and it's my fault. It says 1 Corinthians 16.11. It's 1 Chronicles 16.11. Um, Apparently, my dyslexia kicked in. I don't have dyslexia. I just made that up. Please forgive me. Um, but First Chronicles 16.11 says this, Seek the Lord and His strength. Seek His presence continually. So they were strengthening the church, and they were preaching and teaching in the church. 2 Timothy 4.2 says, Preach the word, be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with complete patience and teaching. And... They were driven by love. 1 Corinthians 16, 14 says, Let all that you do be done in love. What is the answer to the question? Well, how do godly leaders deal with sticky problems or how do we deal with, with problems? 
And the answer is this. Godly leaders humbly seek what God says, wisely understand the culture in which they lead, and work to effectively communicate while continuing their work. That's a lot. That's a, bit, that's a long sentence. I would like it to be shorter, but I wanted to get all those concepts in there. Now, one last thing before I close. It seems to me, and this is my observation, and I'm open to the fact that I could be wrong, that the distance between what I would consider to be godly leadership as it is modeled in Acts 15 that we've been studying and worldly leadership as is exercised currently by those in the world, not by everybody, but by many in the world today, that the chasm or the gulf or the distance that's between these two concepts is widening every day. And I want to explain to you in my last few moments why I think that is. I think that for many in leadership in, on the worldly side of things, many that are perhaps not followers of Jesus Christ or not strong followers of Jesus Christ, they get themselves in a position where they, they crave the position, they crave the power, they crave the control and it almost becomes to them an identity. And so they can't imagine the day that they would no longer be called senator, for example, or CEO, for example. And so they lead their people out of fear that that might happen. And how that manifests is obscuring the truth, sitting on the fence, doing everything that they can, squashing whatever resistance is out there, doing whatever they can to stay in the position that they're in. Maybe some of it's financially motivated, by, like if, if, we, if I give on this topic, then my donor's going to pull out and I'm not going to be able to rerun for the, my next election or whatever. If I make this decision as CEO, perhaps an advertiser that's big for us is going to pull out. We're not going to be able to continue on as we were. They're leading out of fear, oftentimes. But I want to contrast that with godly leadership. Ideally, this isn't always the case, but ideally, a godly leader should have their identity so firmly rooted in Christ, not in their position as pastor, elder, deacon, or whatever, that they're, they're, they would be just as comfortable leading the church of Jesus Christ as they would be not leading the church of Jesus Christ, as they would be leading a, ch a children's Sunday school class, as they would be having the honor of scrubbing the toilets at the church on Tuesday. Because their identity is not in the position. Their identity is in Christ. And their desire is not to please men, but to please the Lord. And so when they make decisions, when they, when they lead the way they do, they're leading it not out of fear, but out of love. Do you see the difference? The only reason that that's even possible, brothers and sisters, is because of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Men and women who lead in a godly way Men and women who lead in a godly way do so because their sins have been completely forgiven in Jesus Christ. They have decided to trust him as their savior from sin and to make him the Lord of their lives and to walk with him all the days of their lives. And it liberates them now to not be fearful of losing a position. 
but instead to take God's word and apply it to a sticky situation and to do so with skill, with good communication, clear communication, motivated and driven by love because they have been loved. It is completely different, and I need you to see that today. The chasm is getting bigger, and as the chasm gets bigger and as worldly leadership gets more and more governed out of fear, it does more and more toxic things and even deadly things. And we just need to see it. We just need to see it so that we can be wise in how we operate in this world. 1 John 4, 18 says, There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear, for fear has to do with punishment. And whoever fears has not been perfected in love. By way of application, just a few things to mention before we pray and, and go home. Uh, support godly leaders. That's, let's, let's support uh, people who choose to lead, whether it's in the church, whether it's in organizations, whether it's in uh, government. And we have some folks with, like that with us in this congregation who choose to lead, lead in government, and they choose to lead in a godly way, let's make sure that we're telling them that we appreciate what they're doing and to support them when it comes time to do so. Let's support godly leaders. But the, the converse is true, too. We need to be careful as we put our support behind ungodly leaders, people who are there to get reelected, people that are there to retain power and control because they're leading out of fear, people who don't communicate clearly, and their decisions are made out of backroom deals, out of the motivation of backroom deals or, or self-benefit rather than out of love. A, a person whose identity is too far invested in their position. All right, last one. Perhaps you're, today, you're here today and you are a leader, right? Just recognize that there's a better way to lead. Don't settle for uh, what works today, what is expedient, what is whatever, right? Uh, demand of yourself godly leadership in whatever it is that you lead for you fathers out there you're leading your homes practice it there right practice humility don't say i'm your father i said so right appeal to what to, to what god has said as you minister to your children as you minister to your wife don't invest your identity men in what your wife thinks of you put your identity in what god thinks of you that's the only way you can be released to really love her now, I'm not saying go home and offend your wife needlessly. We talked about that, okay? Who said awe? <laughs> All right. I love that we can talk about serious stuff and have fun at the same time, don't you? All right, let's pray. Father, this is weighty stuff, especially in the day and age that we live. We've become, I think, desensitized to what godly leadership even looks like in the culture today. We've become so desensitized that we have low expectations for our government and institutional leadership, and perhaps even sometimes for our church leadership. Father, help us to see with fresh eyes these men as they operated in Acts 15 to do right by you and to edify, build up your church, and let us follow their pattern of leadership. Father, we can only do this with your help, and we can only do this because you have, in your Son, Jesus Christ, paid the penalty for our sin, freeing us to live and to love this way. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.